We'll take your Bibles and turn to the letter of Jude this morning, the letter of Jude. We're in our third in a four-week series through this tiny little letter. And as we have done over the last couple of weeks, I would like for us to read the entire letter. We'll come back this morning and we'll only be looking at verses 11 through 16 this morning, verses 11 through 16. As we continue to think about what it means for us to contend for the faith, this morning we'll be looking at the emptiness and the judgment that comes upon those who are false teachers. Let's stand together as we read God's word together. Jude writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Here's our text for this morning. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. 
It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of the glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word? Would you open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law? For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Takes us about three and a half minutes to read the letter. We're going to spend four weeks in a letter that it only takes three and a half minutes to read. And, and when we look forward to next week, knowing that really next week is when he gives us the encouragement. He gives us the admonition. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Give glory to the one who keeps you from stumbling. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Those are the exhortations that, that we're longing for because all along the way, we're asking, why does he keep telling us about all these bad people? We want the instructions for us. We're not the bad people, are we? We want our instructions. We want our exhortations. We want the word for us. We don't want the continual, repetitious, monotonous, redundant descriptions of the bad people and what they've done. Friends, there's a reason that I think that the scriptures are so repetitive at times. That they seem to be so redundant. That they seem to circle an argument and make the same synonymous case over and over and over again. And it's because we're dumb sheep. And we need to hear it over and over again. We need to see it in new ways. Jude is writing to a church that needed to feel the gravitas of the situation that they were in. These false teachers, these intruders have crept in unnoticed. If you look back over the last couple of weeks at our texts, verses one through four of the first week, Jude gives the salutation. He gives greetings to the ones who are called and beloved and kept. And he wants to see mercy and peace and love be multiplied to them. They are the beloved of God. And so he, he writes to warn them. He wanted to write about their common salvation, verse 3. But he said something happened and I had to write about something different. I had to write about a problem that exists. And I'm writing to you because you must protect your house. You must contend for the faith that has once and for all. Remember the argument that we've been giving. This is an uncompromising, enduring, unchanging body of gospel truth that is being given to the church and must be held by the church. And he says you must contend for it because, verse 4, these people 
have come in unnoticed. They didn't come shouting, hey, we're false teachers. They didn't come in and say, hey, we're going to lead you all astray because we're ungodly. They came in unnoticed. And they have deceived others. And they've carried them away into their deception. And they are both with their words and with their ways leading people into destruction. He says they've perverted the grace of God and they've denied our master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse five from last week, he begins to give examples to to show us, to demonstrate for us in their religious heritage, ways that they can compare something they knew and should have understood and felt with the reality of who these false teachers were. And so he begins by talking about the Old Testament. Remember the people of Israel? Remember how they didn't believe and they were destroyed? Remember the angels? Genesis 6, they left their dwelling, they committed immorality, And God has brought judgment and destruction. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? God destroyed them. He didn't just destroy them in an earthly way. He destroyed them with eternal fire. They will forever be separated from God because of their immorality, because of their self-righteousness, because they left what they believed was a wrong position of subservient to God's glory and to God's word and they took on their own pleasures. They took on their own path. And then he goes on. Verse number eight, he uses this strange example that is from an extra biblical source that Michael is contending with the devil about the body of Moses. Somebody told me after the service last week that I kept referring to it as the body of Jesus. So sorry about that. Jesus is risen. You guys know that, right? So it wasn't Jesus' body, it was Moses' body. And Michael realized he needed to put the Lord in front of the argument. And so he simply says, may the Lord be the one that rebuke you. And so he's trying to warn that they cannot deal with these false teachers who are talking about things that they don't know anything about. He says the only thing that they know, verse 10 is they know their own pleasure. They know their own passion. They are like instinctive animals. And their way is going to lead them to destruction. And so then in verse 11, our text for the morning, he begins, woe to them. This is language that Jesus would use. This is language that Jesus used in the gospels repeatedly when talking to the religious leaders or people of ungodly cities. Woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, your whitewashed tombs. Woe to you, you are full of dead men's bones. Woe to you, the outside of your cup looks clean, but inside there's just filthiness. This is Jesus' language. And so Jude begins verse 11 and says, woe to them. And he begins once more with a threefold illustration from the Old Testament. Now, we will see this morning that Jude can do things in numbers other than threes. But he begins with another triad here in verse 11. He gives three Old Testament examples, once again, for comparison's sake, 
so that the people understand the kind of sin that these teachers are bringing into the church. And so first he says, they walked in the way of Cain. They walked in the way of Cain. You remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain didn't like his position. He didn't like his brother's offering before the Lord. He was greedy. He was self-righteous. He was a complainer. He was envious of God's favor over his brother. And so he killed him. And so some have come to this text and they say, well, wait a second, he's making all of these comparisons. Is Jude saying that these false teachers were not only sexually immoral, but that they were also murderers? Like, uh, no, I don't think that that's what he's saying. What he's saying is that in their heart, throughout Jewish tradition, Cain becomes the archetype of sin and envy and one who would reject God's authority and go his own way and so face destruction and judgment. And he says, they've walked in the way of Cain. They're like Cain. They're envious, they're greedy, they're self-righteous. They're only looking out for themselves. The second example that he gives is that they have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. So they've, they've not only walked in the way of Cain, but they've abandoned themselves in the way of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet from the Old Testament, Numbers 22 through 24. Very strange story that a donkey is involved in. You can go back and read the narrative and remind yourself of that story. But Balak wanted Balaam to pronounce uh, judgment upon God's people and Balaam wanted to do his own thing. God wanted him to do something else. And so three different times, God sovereignly intervened and caused Balaam to speak a word that he didn't want to speak. But the Bible says each time he goes back thinking that there's going to be something in it for him. Later we find that over 20,000 Israelites lose their lives because Balaam, Balak, excuse me, leads them into destruction. And Jewish tradition held that it was Balaam that was the one that led him astray and caused him to believe something that wasn't true. And for his own selfish gain, brought about the destruction of many others. So he says he, he abandoned a position that he should have had as a prophet who just spoke gladly what God would speak and lived gladly, humbly, beneath God's word, and instead, he did his own thing. And it brought about judgment not only for himself, but all of those who listened to him. And then, the third example, those who perished in Korah's rebellion. Korah was a priest, and Korah did not like being under the hand of Moses and Aaron, and so in number 16, the Bible says that Korah led many to rebel. They rebelled against Moses and Aaron. They didn't like their position, much like Cain, much like the angels, much like Sodom and Gomorrah, much like all of the unrighteous ones that have been mentioned in previous examples. They didn't like their position. They sought out their own way, and they brought destruction and judgment upon themselves and upon so many others. So he gives this threefold example and notice how he doesn't go in chronological order according to the Bible, but the order of the verbs increases in magnitude and gravity with each phrase. First they went the way of Cain or they walked in the way of Cain. 
Second, they were abandoned from God unto themselves in the way of Balaam. And then third and finally and most heavy, they perished. They perished. There, there is a crescendo that swells throughout this verse where Jude is trying to help the hearer understand just how important it is that they get it. And it's at this point that you might say like, okay, mom, okay, dad, stop repeating yourself. We get it. You've given us example after example after example after example. Now you've given us three more examples from the Old Testament. We get it. And it's as if the Holy Spirit sneaks in through the inspired writer of Jude and says, no, I don't think you do. So I'm going to give you seven more examples, at least. Let, let me give you some pictures. If the Old Testament illustrations and their stories don't work for you, let me give you everyday pictures that might actually resonate with you. And so he begins first through a five-fold illustration of life. People divide these up into fours and fives and threes and sixes over these next two paragraphs. Look in verse number 12 first. These are blemishes on your love feasts. They feast with you without fear. They look after themselves. They're waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And if you appreciate good literature, if you appreciate good writing, if you appreciate picturesque language that helps you get something, then this is a beautiful paragraph that the Holy Spirit inspires in this letter of Jude. He begins by saying, these are blemishes on your love feasts. And if your translation has a little note there, you can look at the bottom and in your Bible it may say, reefs. The word that is translated there, I'm not sure why our modern translations continue to translate it as blemishes. There's one other passage in the Bible that uses the same word and describes it as a spot or a tarnish or a blemish. And it's a very similar word to a word that's used to describe rocks or reefs. And most scholars believe that it really is better translated not as blemishes, but as hidden rocks or hidden reefs. And so this is what I believe it should be translated as. These are hidden reefs as it relates to your love feast. We'll come back to that in just a second. What is a hidden reef? A hidden reef is something that will destroy your ship. A hidden reef is something that you can't see as you begin to pull into the harbor and all of a sudden the bottom of your ship strikes it and you start taking on water. A hidden reef may look really pretty when you're looking at the National Geographic pictures of the Great Barrier Reef off the coast of Australia and all of those other beautiful coral reefs that our God has created over time. But hidden reefs can do serious damage to people that don't see them. And he uses these false teachers, these intruders, these creepers, and he says, they're like hidden reefs. 
They're hidden reefs on your love feasts. What does that mean? In our language, and it's a, it's a good translation, but in our language and in our modern day, there's something that just doesn't strike us well about that language, right? I mean, we will invite people over for a backyard barbecue. We will invite people over for a picnic. We'll invite people over for a potluck. We'll invite people over for coffee and dessert. But if you start calling your friends, hey, we want you guys to come over for a love feast. You will have to find new friends. But in the New Testament, it's clear from not only this, but other texts of scripture that the love feast, the language that is used was a meal that the people of God would share together. It included certainly the Lord's Supper. It was a corporate gathering for the people of God to come and to demonstrate and to show their care for one another, their love for one another because of Jesus. And so it was a fellowship meal. They did life together. They provided for one another. They broke bread together. And they, they took the Lord's Supper together. They remembered the gospel. And Jude says, and these intruders, they have no qualms about showing up and having the party with you, knowing all the while that their words and their ways are leading people to destruction. It's not just that they come. This is an important part, I think, here, friends. It's not just that they come as broken Christians. It's not that they come as people who have fallen into sin and they need restoration and they need someone to speak a word to them to bring them back to repentance and to faith. It's, it's not just that something's gone on in their life and, and they wish it hadn't and they'd like to just cover it up and make sure that no one knows about it and they're sorry for it and, and they want to still be a part of the body of God. No, no, no. These are people who know full well what they're doing. They have no intention of changing. They are not embarrassed about their false teaching or their immoral living. But they'll march right into the religious feast and have no qualms just sitting down with everybody else and acting like nothing's wrong. And Jude says, they're hidden reefs. They're hidden reefs. The second example that he gives is that they are waterless clouds. They're waterless clouds. What's a waterless cloud? It's a cloud that doesn't bring rain. It's a cloud that looks promising. I mean, we had for a couple of months this year a pretty serious drought here throughout Georgia. Like it, it's not only that it's hot in Georgia, but it's hot all the time. And it's not just that it's hot all the time. It's hot all the time without any rain. And so when you see a cloud in the sky, you think, finally, the weatherman was wrong. We're going to get some relief. And then it passes right by you. And nothing happens, and your grass continues to die, and your flowers continue to need the hose, 
because they're just waterless clouds. They look good. They look promising. But they bring no life. They bring no nourishment. They bring no care. They just pass by and they're useless. I was reading the text this week and I just couldn't help thinking about being in the Holy Land. I'm thinking about Israel again already and going next year and going up on Mount Carmel. And you can go up on Mount Carmel and read the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the drought that they had been in and rain hadn't come. And God promised that through his prophet that, uh, that rain would come and that he would be the one to speak the word. And so remember the story, he's up there after the defeat of the prophets of Baal and he sends his man to look and his man says, way off in the distance, I see a cloud about the size of a man's hand and it comes in and it brings rain. Well, what if it hadn't? What if it hadn't? What if Elijah and all the people of God got all excited and they see the the, the cloud like a man's hand and it comes in and nothing? Just a waterless cloud. Pointless. Jude's point is that they're just swept along by the winds. They just flutter about in the sky, and all they do is bring destruction. And so then he gives the next example they are fruitless trees. They're fruitless trees. And the imagery, as if fruitless is not poignant and picturesque enough, He continues on, they're fruitless trees in late autumn. Time has passed for them to bear fruit. You ever planted a fruit tree? Well, it's going to take at least till year two or year three before it begins to produce fruit. And perhaps it does, but the fruit's not very full. It's not very ripe. And you continue to water and it continues to grow and it continues to blossom and it gets flowers on it and buds on it, but it never quite produces the fruit. What if you watch that tree year after year? What if you know the time in which the farmer's almanac says this tree is supposed to be producing fruit and a month passes, two months pass, three months pass. You're into autumn. You're now seeing leaves fall and change colors and there's no fruit. What do you do with a tree like that? You chop it down. You burn it to the ground. You use it for firewood. It's not that they can just keep waiting and hoping that eventually these folks will get it right. The language he uses thereafter is even more heavy. They're they're twice dead. Some translations say totally dead. They're totally dead. And then he says they're uprooted. You ever been walking on a hike, walking through your property, walking along and begin to see a tree, perhaps from a distance, and the leaves are brown, and you wonder what's going on. Is it diseased? What's happened? And you get there, and it's been uprooted out of the ground. It perhaps is still growing, but it's leaned over, and and the, the bulk of the root ball is out of the ground. There's no longer any nourishment. It's dead. He says they're fruitless trees. For a church that just spent 12 weeks thinking about what it means for our lives and our church to be rooted, then this is language that should strike us. What happens when you're not rooted? 
you become a fruitless tree in late autumn. The fourth example, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. You ever been to the beach when the, the waves are very calm and they come in and they go back out, right? And the kids play along the babbling brook there at the edge and they pick up their shelves and everything is nice and peaceful. You ever been to those beaches though after a great storm and the waves have been crashing in and they've brought up stuff that they don't normally bring up and you go out for your wonderful beach walk the next morning and everything's muddy and foamy and kind of filthy. Like the first time I ever went to Galveston, Texas, and the beach was like that, and I thought, do people really come to this beach? Like, the water was nasty and muddy, the beach was nasty and muddy and foamy. Isaiah 57, the prophet Isaiah said, destructive and evil people that God bring judgment on are like wild waves that bring up mire and mud to the beach. It's this kind of language that Jude picks up and says, there are wild waves of the sea and all they do is just cast up their own foam. All you see is just the filth of their life. The fifth example is wandering stars. Some of your translations may say planets. It's unclear what the writer meant in the original language here. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I think the point is clear. People used to navigate by the stars. They'd navigate by the planets. And if things were fixed, then they could navigate more easily. But if things wandered, or if there were shooting stars, or if they began following something that they weren't originally following, then it would appear that those stars had wandered off their course and out of their way, and they could no longer trust the bearings and the navigation of their life by this fixed position. He says, you can't listen to these teachers. They're like wandering stars. They will lead you astray. Their guidance for you will bring you to destruction. And then in verse 14, another example, two that I mentioned two weeks ago, one from the book called The Assumption of Moses, and now a second quotation from the book of Enoch. Two extra biblical quotations. Verse 14, it was about these, these kinds of people, these kinds of teachers, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, not like the seventh literal person from Adam, but seven generations after Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. This prophecy that this extra biblical book quotes from Enoch, Jude must have believed inspired by the Holy Spirit. While that book is not inspired, while that book is not canonical, this part of it is right. And this part of it is accurate. And this part, the people of God need to hear. Enoch prophesied judgment. And then listen to the way that he just continues to, to beat the dead horse here with the same language over and over again. He will execute judgment and convict the ungodly of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in an ungodly way. The harsh things that ungodly people have spoken against him four times in one verse. He uses this word ungodly. They're ungodly. They're ungodly. 
And so however you divide up these last few descriptors, I've used the word ungodly as the first. And so these final few descriptors, he says these people are ungodly and judgment will come. Second, they're grumblers. They're grumblers. Third, they're malcontents following their own sinful desires. And fourth, they're loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Three examples, five illustrations, four more descriptors, following multiple examples and multiple descriptors, from verse five all the way to verse 16. Jude wants the church to understand just how serious a matter this really is. They're ungodly people. They're grumblers. They're not content with what God has given them. They complain, they have critical spirits, They always want more. He has already said in verse number 12 when he described them being hidden reefs that they simply look after themselves. They are not leaders. They are not the kind of shepherds that should be over God's people. And I think it's clear from the examples that are used in these two paragraphs that these aren't like new members to the church. You know, I don't think that person understood the gospel They probably weren't really saved. You know, their life has gone awry. No, these are people that clearly had positions of leadership and influence and authority within the church. And they were doing great damage. And Jude is reminding the church, they're just going after their own sinful desires. They're not contending for the faith. They're not being true to the gospel. They're boasters. They talk a lot. And they show favoritism so that they can gain advantage. I think verse verse 16 and all the way back in verse 11 when it describes these Old Testament examples, specifically the example of Balaam, that there, there was not only just immorality and sensuality in the lives of these people, but there was also the kind of spiritual manipulation and leadership that caused themselves to be able to reap financial benefit and positive advantage in life by the ways that they duped other people. They looked after themselves, they showed favoritism so that they might gain advantage for themselves. Now, over the last couple of weeks, I've tried to give you some points of application. We can't contend for the faith unless we know the faith. We can't contend for the gospel unless we know the gospel. We can't contend in a world and a culture that would speak against God's word and against our God and his character unless we know God and unless we know his word. We we can't go about living the kind of life that God would have us live if we don't know ourselves and our own hearts before the Lord. And how we are prone to wander and we need God's grace. 
and how we're, we, we must be able to look and discern what is truth and what is not truth, what is bad and sinful leadership, not only in the church, but outside the church, people that would speak of Christ, but would simply lead us into directions that we shouldn't go. We have to be able to look at all of those things. We have to be able to look at these examples and be able to pick out what's happening in our world. Friends, when we come to the end of a text like this, like, it can be very easy for us to just simply look to like, the charlatans of TV preaching and for us to just pick on those folks again, right? Don't send your money into the people that want to mail you a prayer cloth. Don't give your money to Kenneth Copeland. Don't give your money to these people. They've been exposed over and over and over and over again for being false teachers. They're heretics. And and they have great advantage, like millions of dollars of advantage, like private jet advantage built off the backs of $5 checks from fixed income widows who continue to be duped and young people who buy into a prosperity gospel thinking that if they sow their seed of faith that God will bless them a hundredfold. It's these kinds of teachers that the Bible would warn us against. But it's not just those kind, friends. It's not just the loud mouth boasters and big slick haired televangelists. It's not just the people who have experienced scandal. It's us. It's us. I don't think Jude was simply trying to point people out and say, y'all have to deal with these false teachers and preachers and get them out of the church. Make sure you're holding true to the gospel. I think he's doing that, but I think he's also saying, if you're not careful, you'll become one of them. If you're not careful, friend, you will look up years down the road And you will realize that you are the grumbler. That you are the malcontent. It's easy for us to hear these verses and read these passages and step away and just say, well, I mean, I'm not perishing in Korah's rebellion. I'm not going against Moses and Aaron. I'm not like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not committing those kinds of atrocious and awful and public acts of immorality. That's not me. But friend, all it takes is a seed. A seed that is not watched carefully that can begin to fester And a seed that can become a cancer. And a cancer that can then take over. 
And before you know it, you have people in the church, people in positions of influence in the church, people in positions of authority within the church. And all of a sudden you find, what's happened to old so-and-so? They seem to be negative about everything. They seem to never want to follow what God seems to be doing in other people's lives. They always seem to have their own agenda. They're always critical. And they always complain. Or, or how about, have you ever noticed how old so-and-so always just talks about themselves and they just boast about themselves and who, who they are and all that they've done. And I think it's just as easily those kinds of people that the scriptures here in Jude would say, be careful, friends. Be careful that that not become you. If you find your heart growing discontented in the Lord, if you find your heart exhibiting a lack of joy in the Lord, if you find seeds of bitterness growing more than joy in the Lord, then be careful. If you find your life toying with sin and believing that there will not be consequences and that you can continue to dabble in it and then you can show up to teach Sunday school and you can sit down to take the Lord's Supper or serve as a deacon, it very well may be that you're just a hidden reef. You're a blemish on God's people and on God's word and on the glory of the very gospel itself. Now here is where it can go the other direction. When we begin to see things like that exist in the church, then often we can become the ones, well look at that over there. Well that's not right. Well that teaching's not right. Well, that person's not living right. And then before we know it, what we think is the right heart and right motivation becomes call-out culture, right? We're going to call out everybody for everything that they're doing wrong. We're going to speak their name and we're going to put it on social media and this false teacher and that false teacher. And then our life becomes consumed with everything that's wrong and, and not the good things of the gospel. I think there's a reason that when Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, he said, if you see someone who's in sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. Restore them gently. Friends, we live in a day and we live in a culture where everybody wants their sound bite. Everybody, everybody wants their little five-second gif that they can put on their social media account. They want their little video. They want that spotlight. 
And whether it's for their own glory or whether it's pointing out someone else's disadvantage and lack of gain, it seems as if like that's the world that we live in. Rather than being the people of God who will say, okay, this is truth. And we should just be humbly living in it. This is truth. And we should be courageously defending it. This is truth. And we should be winsomely speaking it. So that when we notice in the life of somebody that we love, their life going astray, we should be able to come alongside them without the rest of the world knowing and saying, brother, let's, let's sit and let's talk about this. Let's open up God's word and let's look to this. Brother, let me tell you about my own life. When I realized that my tree wasn't producing a whole lot of fruit. Let me tell you, let me tell you about the season in my life when I was struggling with something so bad that there were years of my spiritual life that I just went through the motions and, and I hovered over God's people, but I never brought any water down into their lives. I was just a waterless cloud. I don't want to see that for you. That's the kind of church that I think Jude wants these people to be. Courageous, bold, uncompromising, zealous, passionate, but winsome and kind and loving, spiritual, recognizing that but for the grace of God, there we would go as well. So friend, whether you're the one that finds yourself fruitless and not as rooted as you would like yourself to be, whether you find yourself as one of the stars that may have gotten off course, or whether you're finding yourself this morning as somebody that would like to help others who've gotten off course, but you're just too bitter and, cri bitter and critical to do it. Whatever the case may be, would you allow the Spirit of God to work in, such of your in, in your life in such a way that you are reminded that you've been called and beloved and kept? There's a reason that Jude prayed that from the Lord they would have multiplied to them mercy and peace and love. If people would speak of us, wouldn't you want them to say those things? Those are people who've been kept from stumbling. Those are people who build themselves up in love. Those are people who are walking in the faith and those are people that from God have had multiplied in their lives. Those people at First Baptist Church have multiplied in their lives mercy and peace and love. And they're people who contend for the faith. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would help us be these kinds of Christians. Not those who creep in unnoticed, 
not those who are fruitless, not those who are wild waves of the sea, but those who are rooted, those who reach, those who replicate, those who have in their lives multiplied mercy and peace and love. So God, would you do that? And if there's someone here this morning who would say, I'm off course a little bit. I need to be back on track. I feel myself being pulled away and I don't want to be. If there's one here this morning who would say, I know I need to give my life to Christ because I never have. Then God, would they respond to your word now as we sing. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.